Welcome to the CDC Podcast, episode 27. With me here this time is the founding editor of the Arcade Review, Zolani Stewart. Hello, hi there. Zolani, can you explain to us what is the Arcade Review? The Arcade Review is a magazine. It's a quarterly magazine, which means it comes up four times a year. It redistributes on PDF, which is a Adobe format you can read on. So it's a digital magazine, essentially. And it's an arts magazine. Um, it's an arts magazine that focuses on experimental video games, smaller video games, artsy video games, and with a sort of context of, in the context of sort of digital arts, I guess, in general. That has more to do with approach than anything else. And then we we do that every week. So so we mostly do I mean at least more recent issues mostly do reviews. So we try to do a lot of really interesting close readings of games as well as every issue we do an interview. So I get to talk to a really interesting artist and game maker, experimental art, uh, experimental games, and I get to do that every issue. And that's basically it. So we just do that and and we sell it for money, which isn't a thing that happens too often here. So yeah, we sell it for money. And then we've been going for about over a, a little over a year now. So we haven't been around that long. But in that time, I think we've been able to develop a pretty good audience. That's what I'd say. You say you do reviews. Maybe you want to clarify, because that word brings up many connotations. Yeah, it does, when it comes doesn't to video it? games. Yeah, geez, you know what? You, well, well, the thing about it for me is, is that, I mean, it's, it's just a difference in focus, I guess. When we talk about reviews, it's also that uh, a lot of pieces will tend to focus on one game. One or two games, but basically it's just a focus that we do. But the reason why I say reviews and the reason why it's called the arcade review is because it's supposed to imply a sort of interest in the sort of close reading of singular games and the look of the singular games. It's not an evaluation. In fact, it's completely distanced from that. The magazine will not... You, 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 I have people that not buy the magazine hoping it will tell them what to think. They will not tell you what to buy or what to do. That's not what it's there for. So no, it's, it's, not, it's, not like, it's not like a review you would normally read on, on another website somewhere. Well, the very title of the magazine is, is uh, it's the older, older yeah. Man review. Yeah, yeah, it does, it does, it tingles that. It's not to posture in any way as much as, like, I guess during the time, I guess it made sense. It made sense for what I wanted to be. I won't lie that I, that I wanted to sort of communicate something to, to sort of potential buyers of the issue of what kind of thing it would be. And I think we lived up to that in some sense. So yeah, it, it, it does kind of, it does kind of harken back to a sort of older, I guess, sort of lit- literary criticism style of what review is. And speaking of how you started out, what was the initial inspiration for the arcade review? Oh, jeez. Well, there are a couple. A lot of the inspirations, actually. Well, the first thing was that the, the way the arcade review kind of started was that I realized I was actually, I was like, I think my first year, I was already in my first year in the college, and I was noticing, I wanted to start some kind of publication for a while. You know, um, but I never really thought of the means. During that time, Five Out of Ten was a magazine that was existing for I think about a year at that point, and it was and it seemed to be doing pretty well. And I realized at that point that you know it might have been a good opportunity to try this thing out because it's like, well, this magazine seems to be working out pretty well, and I guess it's something I can try out. So in that sense, I I contacted a person. His name was Alex Pichel. He was someone who was sort of on. It was just someone I knew on Twitter. And then we got together, or I guess actually I just emailed him. I said, you want to start a magazine? He was like, yeah, sure. We just did it. Um, I didn't really know him or anything. I just, I read his blog and he seemed like someone to work with. But so that was mostly, so it mostly happened, I guess, because I was noticing, I was noticing others who seemed to be doing this and I figured I could probably try it out too. But for the most part, a lot of the magazine's inspiration comes from other kinds of arts writing. It isn't really a lot of video game writing. In fact, the magazine's pretty distanced 
from a lot of the sort of tropes and, and general approaches of what we tend to see in video game writing. At the time, I was reading a lot of arts criticism. I was getting really into it. I was, I was reading things like, like Abstract Critical, which isn't around anymore, unfortunately. Um, I was reading things like Reverse Shot, which was a huge inspiration. Reverse Shot is a film criticism website. I still read it occasionally, but I used to read it so much, and it was just, it just, I don't know, it really, oh, Exxon too. Exxon was a really good magazine. That was That's a theater uh, website, so they, they do theater reviews. And I guess I used to read a lot of this kind of stuff, and I always wondered that there was this kind of sensibility towards the works that were being talked about in a way that I just I wasn't really feeling like I was seeing for video games, or at least the kind of video games that I was liking at the time, which were like kind of you know, weirdest shit you'd see on, you know, free games and things you, you do play on reading games, which isn't around anymore. That's what I was playing at the time. So, like, you should, so I guess the magazine is kind of, I, I guess it's kind of made to, it, it was something that I felt like I wanted to have some kind of, you know, video game related publication that I felt like could score up to the kinds of arts writing that was to be done for other forms. But, but those are the places that I was reading and still read, and so in my opinion, are actually some of the best of the forms. That's what I'd say. It sort of, you cobbled it together from a bunch of various influences. Yeah. And I guess you didn't, you had a vague idea of what you wanted to do with it? Yeah, I... Originally? Yeah, I don't know if my memory is too good about the vague idea I had from it, other than the fact that at the time I kind of wanted a publication that would, you know, be able to talk about the kind of games I was interested in, because there just wasn't a lot of places that were doing that. I guess at the time, because the thing is, like, the first issue that we put out was really, was, was kind of weird. Like, it was kind of hasty, and, like, it, it, you can tell that, I guess, like, that I didn't actually have a very good idea of what I wanted. At the time, it was a bit vague, and then I think over time, as issues gone on, I had a better focus. So initially, I don't think I had a, you know, on reflection, I'm not sure if I had a, a very good idea of, of what I wanted um, to do. But other than that, you know, at the time, I just did, there was this, I felt like I was sort of getting... I wasn't being excited by the kinds of writing that was going on for video games. I was being very excited by the writing that was going everywhere else, and I realized that, 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 that there was something about a certain kind of approach that I wanted that would excite me. Um, that's kind of most of it. And that and that got more laser-focused as each issue came out, learning on the job, so to speak. Yeah, yeah, as, as, it, as it came out, it got a, it got a focus. We got a better idea what we wanted. Most Some of that is definitely Alex, and, and having Alex's help actually helped, helped me a lot trying to figure out what is it that we wanted. And as the issues went on, as you start working with people, you know, and you get a better idea of what is it that you're trying to do. And I think, and I think at this point, especially now that we have like an actual staff of, you know, writers who come on, you know, every time, us like Alex and I picking out a staff of writers really does show that we have a really good idea of what we are now and what we want and what we do. And, and we're, we're pretty laser focused now, and it's pretty nice. It's really good to have that. And, and so you notice this hole as for what you wanted. But what type of audience specifically were you aiming for? Because I recall when we talked a year ago, just before you launched uh, in the personal chat, that you were trying to find this space, but it was very difficult to convey what the magazine was because there didn't there was this. I remember you talking about like this this uh, mental impediment for games people to think about arts and for arts people to consider games. Yeah, because at the time the only idea I had back then was that well I kind of want I, like that's why that's why I call it arts magazine. But like at the time, uh, it was like well I kind of want arts criticism, but for video games, and I want the kind of approach that you find arts criticism that tends to, well, I think it'd be super really effective for talking about really weird. And really surprising and compelling stuff, and, and and works that are sometimes kind of difficult, you know. And for doing that for video games, I guess the audience, because so so I guess at the time 
I was looking for this kind of weird wedge in between a magazine that was pretty distant from a lot of the sort of the I don't know like, I guess like a like, like the sort of zeitgeist sphere of what you know of what video game media tends to be interested in, but also at the same time, you know, it's like you can you can have like a really good approach for a lot of like the thing you have a really good approach for a lot of arts but stuff at the same time. A lot of other kinds of forms are much more stagnant um, and kind of old and have been around for a long time. And it was hard because at the same time I was like, I want people who are interested in arts reading this magazine. Like I just I don't want I don't want like the regular video game person. I certainly don't want, you know, the average gamer. And I'm sure not really interested in the audience anymore. That's why I stopped doing writing freelance reviews. I just got really uninterested in that kind of sphere. So I wasn't really interested in the audience and I wasn't and I didn't just want old white people, you know, reading the mag damn magazine, that would have sucked, you know. So I wanted I wanted something you know, I guess I wanted that arts magazine that that was that had a sort of useful and an open this is sort of, sort of like a sort of an open atmosphere that felt welcoming to, to all kinds of people, people who aren't interested in art, not just, you know, not just people who, you know, want to know about, you know, the next game on their console. And, you know, it was weird for me to I was trying I felt I, I felt like at the time that I was trying to reconcile two different kinds of things. I don't really feel that way anymore. I don't feel like it's that weird. <laughs> I feel like I, I also feel like I had trouble by thinking because I was I was sort of going about it the wrong way at the time. I was, I was sort of going about it as if, you know, you have arts people and you have games people, and then it's kind of, you know, but it's not that it's not that sort of separated at all. And to sort of take a separation is kind of is kind of awkward to try to do. So it's not actually that weird. I mean, we we found it, but at the same time, the truth is is that you do have to kind of slowly cultivate an audience that like is specific towards your own interests and, and an audience that will understand what you're trying to do because because that you know that's something that doesn't really exist until you exist, right? And as the arcade review has existed for a long time, there are people, you know, who, you know, as the arcade review has doing this thing, it's like, hey, like, we're doing game script, we're also doing this kind of art script thing, too. Like, there are people, like, the people who, who will also come in with those kind of sensibilities, who are interested in those sensibilities, will come in, too. And having that kind of audience that seems to be able to, I don't know if, I guess, audience is, I guess, perhaps, um, um, has like a cross-disciplinary sensibility, but you know, you know, an audience that that will be, I guess, sort of understanding of what you're trying to do is actually comes across a lot easier once you actually start doing more issues. So it becomes less of a of a weird conundrum. So like, I guess the way that we've mostly found their audience is just by existing. If you exist, you'll the audience will come. I think that's that's usually, I think what I've learned usually for it. I'm not really sure if I can describe the audience of the RQ review. This is my biggest. This has been my biggest problem. For a while, which is that I just had trouble, like, because I, I I don't know if I should put out a survey or something like that, but I just I always wonder like who is like who is it that reads the review? view? Like, is it game studies people? Like, is it just average consumers? Like, is it writers? Like, is it artists? I guess it, from what I understand, I think it's a mix of a lot of people. We get new media artists too. Like I like I because I, I know who buys it, and you know we we we've had we've had game studies folks, we've had new media artists buy your shoes as well as just regular gamer folks who are interested in video games. You know, and some books and stars. So, so I think I think because of the bit of the sort of cross-disciplinary, sort of you know, kind of diverse, kind of a bit of a uncommon kind of approach to games and arts that your review has had, we've also had kind of an, a diverse audience with with diverse interests. Is probably what I'd say. Yeah, because I do find the the question of audience an interesting thing, especially with the internet. Like you don't know. I don't. 
it's just like you're tossing it out into the void. Well, you you at least have one metric in like how many issues sold. Yeah. <laughs> so you, so you at least have that. But do you find that the that it also helped not just by existing and they will come, but that other publications have sort of sprung up in the same arena that have allowed to foster cultivation upon cultivation. Yeah. Um. But and and I but at the same time I don't I don't want to act like I'm. I don't want to act like I'm bragging or some sense, or, or that I'm trying to sort of be self-serving. Oh, in it. No. But at the same time, the RQ, like when the when the RQ review kind of happened, there wasn't really a lot like it, and there's still there is there still isn't a lot like the RQ review to be honest. Um, there still kind of isn't like at like what was it? When did it come out? 2014, 2013. I was working on it late 2013. I was doing a podcast with Lana. I still do the podcast with Lana called Sufficiently Human. And it was a podcast where we were doing the same thing. Like, like the arcade review kind of happened because at the time, Lana and I were in this, we were in this sort of like art games create vibe. It was like, yeah, this is super dope. Like, we talked about it like this, and we were playing all these cool games, and we were doing this podcast together, talking about all these, you know, weird stuff, and we were talking about it in a certain way, and it was kind of, you know, getting traction. But the thing that's especially human was that there wasn't a lot of, I mean, at least when we started, there were a lot of podcasts like that. And, and this was only like a couple of years ago, from what I remember from, you know, memory and the thing too is that and we used to get you know people who used to make these kinds of games you know make these kinds of games that were you know getting put on you know hio or warp or you know wherever you, you find sort of strange stuff strange interesting stuff and you just need to thank us and be like hey thanks for talking about my game like i never i never realized someone could talk about my game this way i always figured you know because no i always figure someone just sits there and tells me the gameplay isn't good i never realized someone could you know talk about my game in this particular way but yeah sure now there are a lot. There are other podcasts like that. There, there's one of them called the Show for Games Talk. That's really good. Um, there's another one that's a bit more. I don't remember its name. I think it's done in Australia. It's a bit more of a kind of like a like a serial. It's really interesting. But like the, there are a lot more podcasts that kind of like take on those kind of sensibilities now. So so the thing about it was that like the arcade review kind of came out out of a sense of me that I never felt like was there. And as a, and I do kind of feel like and perhaps maybe there's something I'm missing. But I do kind of feel like the review kind of you know, what is a magazine that is kind of at the spear tip of something rather than, so it, it really, I really do feel like the magazine kind of had to, kind of had to just sort of be this beacon for people for a while. I, it still is a beacon for a while. I got an email like two weeks ago from this, from this person that just like, you know, this person who bought, you know, two issues just straight off the bat. And it's just like, I was, lo- I've been looking for this kind of criticism forever. And it's like, that's cool. Like, it's great. You know, so like, it's still, it still acts as a beacon. It still, it still needs to be standing there. There isn't really a lot. Like, there are really a lot of places that are like the Arcade View, bigger than the Arcade View, and that sort of help bring people to us. We kind of just, we kind of just have to be, keep standing there and hope, and hope people notice us. But at the same time, there are definitely other publications with similar sensibilities towards us. That also kind of came out at the same time. I don't know. I don't know if their audiences are similar. I think like, but that's actually that's actually something I'll like. I'm not actually sure. Like, I don't know if the people who read five out of ten people who read our review. I don't know if people who read Zeal are seem to read our review. But I find I find Zeal, which is a something done by EVB. Uh, she does. It's kind of like a it's kind of like a web design thing on the medium. It's very good. I wrote I wrote a big Sonic piece for that for that Sonic Adventure. That was really good. That was a piece. I think. I think that's like at least that's a magazine that I would consider pretty similar. I think AV and I tend to kind of want something pretty similar, even though the game talk about tend to be a bit different. I don't know if their audiences are shared though. Well, what I, I sort of meant by that is like you you cultivate out of people that exist and find there's something here that they didn't know what they wanted before. Yeah. Because you see a lot of like a lot of arts things popping up 
in the last year. So I don't know if it was influenced by the fact here is a large launch of a new magazine or if it was just time and all these things just happen independently. Yeah, I, I think the way those things happen is that people see – I think people see something existing and then they kind of realize they probably want to do it themselves, whether they whether they've always wanted to do it you know, or whether they, they, they sort of discover this new kind of perspective that, that, you know, that they never really considered before and that they want to, you know, be able to engage with themselves, then yeah, it definitely, I think, I, it's, I guess, I guess in some sense it's at least somewhat contagious. Um, it's definitely, it's definitely contagious because I think, you know, like the thing is, see, I, I'm always, I always go back and forth, but at the same time, like, I think I, I really have been able to notice the kind of audience that does, you know, read something like the AR. And those people, and like, I, I think sometimes I see those people meeting each other as well, you know, so I don't know if it's a community, but just like spaces of people who talk to each other and, and engage with each other as well and, and engage with other kinds of publications that are somewhat similar. So yeah, I, I think that's how a lot of that stuff works. Um, I think that's how it works for anything, especially like, I think the thing that Arcade Review does, but also in general, just kind of video games criticism in general. Video games criticism, I don't know if it, it's the same thing as when I, as when I got into it, because I got into video game criticism, I think a couple, three years ago, around 2012 or so. When I got to being criticism, it was like you just there's just something you found like a gold mine, right? It's like you know, you you just kind of trip over it. And you're like, oh shit, there's mm-hmm. this whole fucking thing that's just been here. You know, um, I don't know. No, it was the same in 2008. Oh, it was okay, yeah, yeah. So I guess you know, um, it was even harder to find though. Okay, yeah, you know, so like I think that's how it is for a lot of it. I think I think honestly that's just kind of the situation of a lot of sort of small and a lot of sort of small and independent organizations or independent organizing. Is that like when it comes to audiences, you know, people can, people like people really have to discover and then they can bounce around between things like the Arcade Review and similar publications as well. And that's really good. I think that's a really good thing. I, I'm really happy. Like, like I really like the idea of someone reading the Arcade Review and finding it, and then also, you know, sort of somehow being able to be relayed to other kinds of similar publications, similar sensibilities, and, and gains a kind of perspective that way. I mean, the Arcade Review doesn't have a Blog world, yeah. Like, I know the Arcade Review doesn't have a blog role on it, but you do have citations, right? But we do have citations, yeah. We have an index on the back of it. I think it's hard to hold me. We, we, have, we have an index in the back, and I'm sure that actually kind of you know brings people towards certain places. But we used to have a like kind of a blog role thing on the back. We used to actually put all like the other sort of alternative video game publications on the back of the magazine, uh, which was five out of ten, and we put zeal and we put First person scholar, we put memories in, insufficient, and we put uh, and we put warp tour too. We told people, hey, you know, like like if you like these games, like if you think this is cool, like there's a soul say that's just constantly putting out news things like this, you know. So like like it's like, I think that's kind of and I think that only helps the community too, because you can just sort of bounce people around between different kinds of different kinds of nodes around. I think the sort of same particular video game sphere. So yeah, that's what I think. Only slightly switching tracks. Because I've gone through the well, at least the first two issues, I'm a little behind. Is the, your specific brand of close reading is different? Definitely different from mainstream, but even different from I guess the middle ground from where I guess I belong. And if you could uh, explain the type of art discipline that aspires to, or is, that would be a part. Oh, of. Oh, geez, it really depends on the person. I mean, here Alex is an English teacher. You know, well, from, speak for yourself. Well, well, for I, mean, I mean, well, for myself, I come from. First of all, I I have no. I want to say this is so I can get out there. I have zero art education. I have none. I I can barely even finish college. Everything that I know, I read books on. 
I just started reading some books and you and you and you read some and you read some good criticism in places and you just kind of develop an idea of how to approach things. So I don't really have a formal arts education at all. As someone who finished college, that is pretty much what you do in college. Okay, well, you know, I guess I guess <laughs> I have it, you know. And the thing too is that so personally, I've always loved to approach things from a, a visual arts criticism perspective. A lot of how I like to go up against, especially weird games. I've assert, like, I have like I used to say I used to say that games video games are just paintings. I used to say that a lot. I still think they kind of are. I still think the virtual space is just that is actually something I'd like you to elaborate um, on. Video, because I've, I've heard you go on like that, and I've never gotten yeah. That. So I mean, I mean, and from my perspective, video games are really are the aspirations of painting. They really do, especially abstract painting. Video games are very much like abstract painting in my mind. Um, they seem to be interested in the very similar things, which is which is our like relations. Like I mean, on the more abstract, like yeah, our relationship with space, but things like there's space and distance and, and texture, and always these kind of sort of these kind of really these kind of really difficult to describe sort of sensory relationships with you know with the kind of with these kinds of material settings around us. Like 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 video games are very abstract. We you kind of we kind of they always kind of get sucked out of it, but they are incredibly abstract. If you read a painting, if you read like a piece of, of abstract right on abstract art and they'll say things like, Oh my god, it feels like 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 at, at least at least the ones that are a bit more exaggerated, the ones that are a bit, you know, kind of pushed up. And, you know, they'll say things like, Oh, you know, it feels like a you know, it feels like I'm staring at this thing and it's like I'm in this virtual world. It's like it, all these colors flashing by me and it's like, oh man, like if you played a video game, you know, it's just it there, there's a lot of at least four games that I think are a bit more abstract. Reading painting Criticism has really helped me understand how to, first of all, how to describe things, how to describe a sort of visual and sensory experience that's in front of me, being able to describe phenomena that happens. That's one of the, the big things that you learn, actually, is being able to just describe what happens in front of you. Description is really important. I don't know if that's something particularly valued a lot in video games, but being able to, like, a writer being able to just sort of very, like, cleanly just to describe what is happening is something that's done really, really well with visual arts. Yeah, I guess the, the thing, and the thing, too, is that, because I did a talk last year on different kinds of devices that can, you know, that we can start thinking about for video games, and a lot of them were the same ones, and I drew, like, a, like some kind of chart, and a lot of them were the same ones as painting, which kind of, and the thing, too, is that I've also been reading a lot of theater as well, and theater helps us understand the relationship between bodies which is very important for video games. So, you know, the way bodies have physical, very physical, material, and kind of ontological relationships with each other. There's bodies that have force, and, and the, when you play a video game, when you feel claustrophobic in a space, or you feel, you know, like a space is really open, or, you know, some kind of very confusing place that you're in, you know, bodies that feel like that they control well or control badly is kind of weird binary, but bodies that feel heavy, bodies that feel very light, and because video games are very, very difficult things, it's never really that easy. It's always something very difficult. I've always found video games to have very, very similar concerns to visual arts in a way that I don't that, that for a while I never really felt like was was really expounded on. And and honestly, thinking about visual arts has really helped me be actually a better critic, way, way better critic. Playing all, but but at the same time, like a lot of you, it's hard to it's hard to feel that way when you when you're just playing stuff on your PlayStation Three, like like the. The, the reason I do this is because, you know, if you play a lot of first-person narrative games, for example, or, or you play a lot of really odd, very, like, kind of abstract, very freakish, sort of surreal, you know, kinds of games made by sort of experimental game makers, that kind, that kind of stuff starts to make more sense because the thing about painting is that you're often trying to describe something that isn't describable. Like, you're trying to describe these things that are not representational, that are kind of weird between representation and abstraction, I guess. If you're just playing a game where you're just a dude running around, 
you know, talking to people that doesn't really come out. But if you're playing a game where you don't know what the hell is happening, you don't know what this thing is, you know, you don't know what this place is. Everything just looks kind of weird. Everything is confusing you. You know, it's just this very odd, surreal, abstract place of different kinds of representations mashed together. Then, yeah, things like painting, like collage, even something like theater helps with that. Because I feel like one of the things that arts, that a lot of arts criticism is very good at is being able to sort of approach and appreciate weirdness, visual weirdness, and be able to describe visual weirdness instead of just get freaked out by it. Yeah. That is a thing all video gamers seem to accept, that video games is a very open home to surrealism. Yeah, and, and, and I guess, and, and surrealism and expressionism, you know, just like, like, it's not just, oh, you know, things are kind of glitchy, you know, I think that's usually the extent for a lot of gamers, it's just like, well, things are kind of glitchy because they don't work, and it's always sort of put positioned, you know, in contrast to things being supposed to work. But but when I say expressionist in the sense that sometimes these things are actually intentional, you know, sometimes you, you want to, this is like, these are like basic things I feel like isn't, aren't expounded on very often, which is like, sometimes you want to make something look kind of weird so you can communicate something about a represent, about representations, representations of objects, of images of people. Like, you know, sometimes you want to make something look kind of odd and sometimes looking at something, you know, even if it's not intentional to do that, you know, it communicates a kind of experience that is not necessarily cannot necessarily be say, oh, you know, functional or not functional, or, you know, good graphics or not good graphics, or whatever, but, but being able to say, hey, like, this thing, I feel like it's communicating something really interesting about these bodies and about this place because of this odd experience. So it, it's being able to take strangeness and, and appreciate weirdness and, and also talk about, take weirdness seriously. Take weird games seriously is something that I think Noib says a lot. And, like, like that I've also been taking, like, trying to say more often. And that's, and that's something that I feel like I've, I've been able to really appreciate and take from place and something I've wanted to do for with video games. And the RPG does that very well. I'm very happy with that. We only do it better every time. And we've taken on. For When it comes to Alex, is he's in... So, so I mean, so yeah, I say I come from mostly a visual arts background. That's mostly what I'm interested in. That's mostly what I do. Alex is an English teacher. He actually... So I guess in some sense he comes from a literary criticism background, but I mean, Alex, Alex doesn't... Like, he doesn't cling... At least from what I understand, because I edit his writing, he doesn't necessarily cling to those things, even though he does come from very much that background. But I don't expect everyone who writes for the Arcade Review, you know, to be able to take on the background I do. I do expect certain things, Alex, and I do expect certain kinds of things, you know, that are a bit similar to the kinds of background that I have. Of course, because I'm biased. You know, there's certain kind of writings we both like, and certain kind of writings I'd like to have on. That's what I'd say. Yeah, you've brought up the term weird games a couple of times yeah. in describing both your work and the magazine. I don't suppose you could get more specific on what exactly you mean by that. Yeah, um, I don't expound. I remember one of the. T- I, remember, I don't. Re- I don't know if you remember the first critical proximity. It was like a. T- it was a thing that I did. He did that. He was the thing he organized last year, and I did a talk for it, and it was called "Why Weird Games Are Important." People still like that, which is cool. I really happy people still really like that one. I guess mostly. I guess I guess the thing for me is that usually when I'm describing weird games or games that are some strange, I guess in a lot of ways it ha- it comes down to games that often very much surprise and confuse me in ways that I feel like a lot of video games I play just do not. Right? Like even though I have fun playing a lot of video games on my PlayStation, you know, and I like like there's there's nothing about them that particularly surprises me or catches me off guard. And one of the things that that when I started playing you know, more kinds of games on these kinds of fringes of the internet, one of the things that always caught me was just how surprising a lot of games were. You know, how, how a lot of games were, you know, representing images and objects in ways that were very unconventional, in ways that were very surreal, in ways that were often feeling like they were trying to 
communicate something that wasn't immediately readable, something that wasn't immediately understandable, something that had to be thought over and read. So one of the so like last year, for example, actually one of the games from issue four that I remember uh, for actually for example, um, Emily Reed, she talked about a game called Gingiva. And Gingiva was is an RPG maker game made by this person named John Clowder. And Gingiva was this game where where you play as a woman with a scissor head. So you're walking around with a scissor head and you're doing work. You're you're working at this factory and you're working in this factory with a bunch of other women with scissor heads on. And then you have to get out of the factory and then you have to sort of find some place for yourself. And this was and you look at it and you go, well, This is what the hell is this? Thing. But of course, Emily didn't do that. She wrote an essay on how Jinjova is actually about the woman worker and the capitalism, the way in which women, you know, through, you know, the way that women are forced to do certain kinds of labors, mostly reproductive labors. So, labors, you know, pertaining to the house, um, labors pertaining to uh, their ability to take care of children, things like that. And how, you know, these, these, these kinds of, these kinds of shield images were actually very much pointing to the kinds of struggles that women were having regarding this. So this is this this was an essay that she wrote particularly about that. So an essay I wrote off for issue four because that was the last essay I wrote for the Arcade was in January and it was called a game called 2:22 a.m. and it's a game where you're you're kind of watching a TV screen and the screen feels like it's constantly changing and you you, you don't like you know you're just you're seeing these images of stuff happening. So like you you, you change like the channel changes you know without your input. And suddenly you're watching a road go by. And that's it. You're just watching a road go by. There's no music on it. There's no sound. There's no control. You're just watching the road go by. And then you see a forest. Then you see a valley. You know. And then suddenly you're walking. And then suddenly you're walking. And you know. Or suddenly you're, you're chopping eggs. Or suddenly you're walking in the forest. Or suddenly you're climbing a ladder. It's just it's just these sort of weird, you know, these, these kinds of you know very quick kind of visual clips, different kinds of experiences just being flashed by you over the time. And I wrote an essay about how that's basically just kind of like an image before you die. It's just a lot of different kinds of regular experiences flashing behind you and it is communicated through this idea of a television. Right? So, it's just so, I mean the thing about weird games is that like, I don't I guess for a while it's just been something that's been pretty convenient to use. These terms are always just conveniences. You know, they're always just wasted that are kind of easy to describe. But mostly it's just because it helps me communicate that the games I'm talking about are games that seem to, you know, really use their form to communicate very unconventional and very uncommon ideas in very unconventional ways. Ways that are not, that are not, that don't immediately reveal themselves. Ways that are a bit, you know, kind of, uh, I guess somewhat challenging too. Because I want to challenge me. I really enjoy that. That's what I do. So for the magazine, do you like the broad cross-disciplinations that various writers bring into it beyond your own scope? Right, because right, because if you ask me what, what weird games are like, I'll tell you one thing because that's just the games I like to play. I like to play weird first-person games. I like to play. I like to play usually. Sometimes I like to play some interesting TV stuff, but usually I like to play sort of odd. Sometimes I play straight up just sort of a, a for like for walking simulator. But sometimes I just like to play really odd kinds of first-person surreal games. And games that are visually surreal in the way that it's not because the painting, because that's what I like. But there are lots of games that I don't have much experience playing a lot of. One of them is Twine Games. And there are people on, you know, there are people on staff who are interested in that. Lana's much more interested in Twine Games than I am, to be honest. You know, um, what's it called? Um, Emily has a lot more experience playing RPG major games than I do. So if you ask her... Emily... Emily Reed. Um, Reed. Emily Reed. Um, and if you ask her, what are weird games to you? She'll probably tell you, well, I well a lot of this stuff is RPG Maker stuff. It's kind of like the Catamite stuff and John Clowder. She's really into John Clowder. 
you know, if you ask Lana what weird games tend to think, she'll probably tell you something about poetry. She'll probably tell you that these games are very poetic, that they have, you know, these poetic devices in them to be able to communicate ideas. See, I'm, t- I'm talking about representation, you know, but, but, but Lana is someone who comes from a literary background. And it's just someone with actual, not, he's not always a, a game developer, he's also an artist, he, he, he does exhibitions and such. And if you ask him about weird games, he'll probably tell you, he'll probably mention something more analogous to actual technology as well, because Ash does new media art, so and new media art is, is a bit more explicit about those kind of, you know, sort of sort of tech thing, because, you know, it's done in a galleries or an exhibition on screen and such. So it always, so like everything that I say about this always comes from my own personal perspective, of course. I'm sorry, I, I realized like, I said that, but I, I didn't actually, I didn't actually catch the question. What was the, can I ask the question again? If it was? I think I asked, because I barely remember it, yeah, okay. about like, how it is to bring those cross disciplines oh, right. into one magazine. Yeah, well, I mean, it makes it a magazine, <laughs> right? <laughs> it, 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 it doesn't just become, you know, the, there's a whiny review. It's like, it, it becomes your theater because everyone comes in with their different stuff. You know, here's the thing. I'm, I'm coming in with, with, you know, my sort of visual background as well as the theater background, or at least like, you know, doing a lot of studies and theater studies of my readings and such. What's it called? Lana is also um, a writer, but of course Lana has poetic background poetry. Um, as I said before, as a developer, um, as well as an artist. So the first thing that he wrote for us was called Ansh wrote a piece about Slave of God, and he wrote about code. Uh, he, he took the source code, we, we published part of the source code of Slave of God by Stephen Lavelle, and he talked about the source code, and he said, this is the source code, this is what I gather from the way this code works, this, this C-shell code works. This implies to me something about what you know, Stephen, Stephen wanted to do and what he was aiming for and what he could was not capable of doing with his technology. And that was something he was able to do that I wouldn't have been able to write at all. You know, um, that was something as well. What's it called? Also, I guess the last thing Gita wrote for us was a piece on Little Party. And, you know, and she, and she wrote this piece about what it is like to be like this teenage artist. You know, what is it like to be someone with this, this very young creative person who's trying to use, perhaps, maybe trying to use his creative energy to try to deal with their own insecurities using this creative energy to try to, you know, deal with the own weirdness of adolescence and such like that. And that's a perspective that Gita brings. I think, I think Gita is someone who often is very perceptive and very incisive about her own life experiences. And she knows how to not just, you know, take that and just use it, you know, not just take that and just say, oh, you know, I'm going to tell a story about something, but also, you know, um, layer it over really good and, and very sharp interpretation. And that's something, and she writes, she writes pieces that I would also... Um, not be able to write as well. And that's, so everyone, you know, and also, um, Edmund is also someone, Edmund Chu. I don't think people know about, a lot about Edmund Chu. Um, he's a very good writer. Um, I actually found him, um, I read his blog and I emailed him, like, I know what I want, can you write for a magazine? You know? And that's basically, that was basically a lot of it. But, but Edmund is also someone who's very much insightful about his own life experiences as well. And he writes very, very perceptive and very funny essays too. Edmund is a really funny writer. He's funnier than I am. Um, and that, 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 that's something so, Everyone on the kind of writer stuff that you're going to bring in comes from different kinds of perspectives and comes from different places. But the thing that is, that is similar with all the writing styles, with Alex, with the people that we tend to choose for the pitches, is that they're all very much used to talking about art. Whether, you know, whether it is, you know, a real, you know, say sort of formal arts background or a, you know, sort of developing background or poetic literature or whatever the fuck it is. Or cinema, because I know, I know Gia is someone who has a cinema studies background. Everyone on the staff are used to talking about art, not just video games. And I think that's what makes the Arcade View pieces, you know, enjoyable to read and interesting. 
I think this makes Spiffio interesting because you could you can tell that these the, the folks on it, not only just the staff, but the people we get on for contributings and extra contributings are not just video games people, video game people, um, caps. There's just not just I play some PS3 games and I just step it up. People who are used to talking about you know art objects and doing close readings of art objects, you know, and doing real interpretation and doing you know sort of textual interpretation on things, and are used to thinking about experiences that aren't immediately revealing towards them and something that they can reflect on and be incisive on. So I think that's what makes a lot of the folks similar. I think that's what kind of blends, I think that's what, what this kind of the pair and a lot of the perspectives that come in. But, but I think people were definitely coming from different kinds of backgrounds. Yeah, that's, that's what I'd say. But like, even the thing too is that, you know, is that e- even when, you know, Jita or Emin or whoever is, is coming in and talking about, you know, things from their own lives, how that's affected them. The writers who come in are always, always doing like really good close readings. They're always talking about close, you know, incisive observations on the game itself. They're always very much able to do that. Um, I think that I think those are the kinds of things. So I, I think that there are definitely some similar tethers that make the magazine feel cohesive. That feel, make it feel like it has a real content behind it. That's like like you know, it's not just kind of like this scattered thing. There's real editorial vision under it. But I think I, I like to think that it's diverse enough. That it doesn't feel the same person saying everything over and over again. That's the philosophical behind it. But what about the like the technical aspect of like the physical magazine? Well, physical as as it were, magazine. The design of it. Oh yeah. So when when we started, I wanted to do God Jesus. You know when I started their review, I wanted to do like a I wanted to do like a space thing. I was like, oh yeah, I wanted to kind of be like kind of like this weird sort of spacey abstract kind of deal. You know, so of course the first issue is the like a, a you know the cover of it is like this weird planet, you know it's like this you know and it's like all these purples and blues and such. But over time, um, we've been able to sort of digress a bit from that. Um, jeez, I guess in terms of the design of the magazine, one of the things that has to look good, and and I know that's like a I know that's like pretty broad, but like that's really important because I mean, and I'm not going I don't want to you know throw shade on on whoever because. You know, I, I respect pretty much every publication that's around, but a lot of video game content and a lot of video game publications do not look very good. A lot of them are pretty badly designed, something that's just really corny looking. You know, and one of the things from day one of the arcade review was that it's not going to look corny. Like, it's going to be, like, it's going to be a, you know, nice, classy looking and, and smooth looking arts magazine that looks good. You know, <laughs> it will not look, it will, you know, there's going to be no, you know, bit, you know, 8-bit fonts. You know, no, 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 you know, controller variation logos, none of that crap, none of it. You know, it was, it was good, like, like none of the, that video game. Yeah. So, 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 which, so the thing about it is that, is that the arcade view is that it doesn't immediately reveal itself as a video game magazine. You cannot look at the cover and think, oh, this is a video game magazine. Well, this must be a video game magazine because look at the fucking ink. This, it's none of that. Um, so aesthetically, it really does, it really does distance itself from a lot of the, you know, from a lot of that kind of video game aesthetic, even though it is a magazine that mostly talks about video games. So that was something I wanted to do from the outset. Because um, the whole, I think the point was that I wanted something that felt like it could stand with any publication, any arts publication that focuses on art media, you know, regardless. Not just something that is decent in video games, but it's decent anywhere. And I think part of that meant I had to actually design something that had, that had a sort of aesthetic quality to it that felt a bit more wide-reaching, I guess in some sense that felt a bit less insular, you know, and not something that was constantly self-referential towards itself. Something that was just very good looking. Even the first the first issues don't look very good, 
it's completely my fault. That's just design mistakes I make that I get better at at the time. But that's been something that's just going on. That's why we get the covers we get. Um, one of the things with the RQV is that from day one, also, I think I feel like I had a better idea of the design that I did of the writing philosophy when we started out. Like I just I want I want really good covers. I want like some of the best covers. Like I want this magazine to be something that's known for its covers. Was the thing. Um, I and I think the covers have stained it. Every issue, they you know we get really really interesting artists who most people don't really hear about. Really interesting illustrators around. I find them and, and, and we work together and we put out some really surprising, interesting work. You know, the thing about the covers is they all have a similar theme to them. They're all very different and they all, you know, vary because I'm trying to make sure, you know, they don't look all the same. And the thing is that they all, they all have a similar theme to them. And the theme is that, is that they're all very eye-catching, but, you know, and they very much catch your attention, but they're also very, in, they're also very intricate. Um, all the covers are, have lots of layers and parts to them. And you have to look at them for a long time and really think about those covers to really feel like you have a grasp on their concept. You have to really, you, like, like you can all, do, like with every single cover with them, you can really look at it and tell little tiny parts of it. That's the theme through all of them. And that's the reason why I've always wanted that, and the reason why I tell every artist that who works for us that I would like something very detailed and intricate but something that really surprises and something that kind of rewards, you know, the thinking is because that's the point of the creative views writing is that it's a lot of people who are making very intricate observations, people who are paying attention, really paying attention to works that are challenging them and that, that there's some kind of warring critical experience of engaging with these kinds of works earnestly and engaging with them critically. So that's, a, that's the kind of link between the, the, I guess a lot of the writing, a lot of the practical stuff. The magazine is good type. I don't know if this is tried or not, you know, but but like it, it's always mattered to me that we have good typography, and I think and I and I hope I can say that the magazine has some of the best typography of any freaking magazine. I've noticed that it's changed over because yeah, the first one was very very small, yeah, it was and very densely. Yeah, packed. it was. It was awful. Ugh, ugh, I feel terrible about that. Every time I look at it, I said, Lonnie, what did you do? How did why did you do that? <laughs> you know, yeah, it's a lot. It's a lot more spaced out now. It's much more spaced and, out. Um, we don't. And the infamous mistake, on, like, I think it was the third article where you had that swash of yeah, yeah, you know, that was the same color as the type. Right, which is a problem because trying to put photo and text together is always, on PDF is always a problem and you're always going to get terrible contrast and you just got to you gotta figure something out. And yeah, you're right. That was definitely something I remember. So like the first issue, even though I had aspirations, high aspirations, I didn't exactly meet them. But I didn't slowly and slowly you know, being those kinds of aspirations as it goes on. Um, we do, but that's the thing with the type is that like we do white on, like we do, do we do straight white on black text. Straight white on black text. Outside of the covers, you know, uh, as in like the covers of the articles themselves or sometimes they'll put photos, sometimes they won't. On issue four, there are, there are no photos. It's just white, black text all over. You know, it's just, it's just like, it's just like you open this and like, this is the thing you're supposed to read. Like this is the thing you were meant to sit down and read through. It's something that gets communicated through it but it makes sure that everything kind of moves towards that. So, like, that's kind of the thing of it. Like, if I ever do, a, like, a print issue, I'd like... Like, here's the thing, too, is that if I ever do, like, a print issue, which I'd like to, it's just it's always hard to, you know, organize it. You know, I'd like I'd like a magazine that feels like it stands onto other kinds of typography magazines as well as arts magazines that are also often look very good. You know, there are a lot of really beautiful kinds of prints out there, and I'd like Derek Udemy to also be a beautiful print. And not something that's just like you know, just kind of just another corny video game thing with the, you know, with the regular with the regular saucer, the squarish one. 
That's like, it's like a video game font, the kind of squarish game informer type font. No, I'm not into that. So like a lot of that. So yeah, I think I think people have in, I think people have I hope people have kind of enjoyed the design of it. It's kind of it's very simple. It's kind of straightforward, but also like the I think the thing about the design is that type is really important. And type holds everything. It really really does. You know, if you have a good type, you don't you don't if you have a good type and you have good color then the world is yours. Like, there really is no problem. You don't need any, you don't, you don't need any weird flashy stuff. You don't need any, you know, you don't need any weird, you know, sort of corny display stuff. If you just have really strong, interesting type on your header, strong, interesting type on your text. And for issue five, we put good type on photo. We actually did photo this time, but I did it better this time than I did on the first issue. You know, <laughs> but, but we, we did photo this time, you know, and I used, I don't remember what the type was. I got type kit, which is great. It's Good service, and and they used a very good saucer text with these great curves on the ends of their strokes, and it looked really good. It looked re- it made it made the pieces look really powerful. It gave them a, a you know a presence on the page. You know when when you look at Claris's uh, when you look at her article, and it says Rothko and Abstract Architect just right on the top half of the page, and then you see the the Rothko Chapel on the side. Like it's just you know like it it just it it needs everything. It really it really does. It really pulls you in. You know, and I and I wanted to do that from the start, and I think it's only gotten better. So yeah, that that's what I say about design mostly. But on the arcade review site, you have a, a blog where you put some of the articles that appeared in the magazine, and you take it out from behind the paywall, yeah. as it were. Yeah. You care to explain the process behind yeah. that, or why these particular articles? Yeah. Well, I mean. So, so the, the problem with doing a PDF magazine, first of all, I mean, the only reason why the why the arcades exists is because we we sell it for money. It's the only reason it exists. Okay. If we didn't sell it for money, it wouldn't happen. We just can't. That's just the reality of it. Um, I mean, people buy it, so we're, we're you know it's it's nice. You know, we, we we get a nice. The thing is, the arcade review it's a little bit more expensive than a lot of video game publications, but because it's more expensive, we don't we can live off a small audience. So, like, we have a small audience that pays a little bit of a higher price. And therefore, we actually do pretty well every time we're able to constantly put out new issues, right? The fact that we can still do that is a very good thing. And sales go to us, you know what I mean? There's no, like, weirdness, you know? There's no royalty weirdness or anything like that. And we can pay people flat fees, and, and it works out pretty well. The problem with doing a, a PDF magazine as opposed to a website, so think about so the conundrum, the, 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 the sort of the, you know, the, the raw deal of the 21st century is that, you do a website and you get tons of attention, but you get no money. You put it in PDF, you get some money, but you don't get much attention. So nothing on the archive spreads. Like like nothing written in the magazine, even though there's really good stuff in it, really good stuff in it. Nothing in that, like it doesn't catch fire. It doesn't get into you know nothing on the archive starts Twitter debates or anything like that. None of that, right? You can't. It's just it's a PDF magazine. You can't. It's not instantly readable by people. People can't access it. You know, um, so it doesn't really spark up a bunch of discussion. Unfortunately, it doesn't bother me too much. I don't know how other people on the staff feel about it, but that's kind of how a lot of it is. But you know, so I figured, you know, I figured, you know, maybe we should we could put we should put some stuff up on the website. And putting stuff on the website, especially because we used to have this awful, awful website. Oh God, it was a WordPress website. It worked, looked terrible. It only ran on PayPal, and it looked weird, and it was such a mess to maintain. Finally, we, you know, we were doing better every issue. We were starting to get more sales and. You know, I we had the money to get a get a Squarespace, get like a really good website, you know, like a quality website, and that website allows us to have a blog on it, like a good blog, have a blog and its product page. So it's kind of like a technology thing. We just realized something we could do now, and we realized, and I realized this is a good opportunity to start putting stuff on the blog, 
you know, put some pieces on the blog that, you know, people get a good idea of it. You know, maybe that stuff will spread, you know, but, but more importantly, it'll, it'll give, you know, it'll give an idea to people of, of what the magazine is and it'll, it can cast their attention and maybe they'll want to buy an issue. So, you know, it, it try I guess it tries to act a bit of like a hook line to, to people who might be interested in it. It has, I think it's worked a couple of times. I have people email me being like, yeah, you know, I bought your issue because I read your, I read the, the blog, your blog thing on, you know, Rocco. I was like, yeah, yeah. That's really legit, you know. So it kind of works. It works, you know. So it just—it's a way. I think it's a way to get to try to sort of push the magazine a little bit into the kind of internet discussion space a little bit. Try to nudge ourselves there. Uh, in terms of picking the pieces themselves, it's just honestly—it's just the ones I think are going to spread more. That's usually the thing about picking them. We, we just we usually just we usually pick the ones that that are going to, you know, the ones that we feel like are really going to like. You know that that are made for the internet, I guess, that are good for the internet. Um, you know, so so the first one, so the one we put out, so and and, and that's always a guessing game. Sometimes I'm right, and sometimes I'm wrong. You know, you can't predict the internet. The one I was I was kind of sort of like I was kind of surprised I was Alex's piece. Alex Pichel, he wrote a piece on glitches called what was it? Uh, what was it called? Um, a history of glitches, I think it was called. And it was a very long piece, as Alex does. You know, he always goes over the word limit. And he goes to 6,000. And I'm like, and I'm like, all right, this is good. You know, because so he always writes over the wall, so it's usually not a problem. And and it blew up. It really blew up. It was, it's still our most popular piece. Was this huge 6K word history on glitches, you know, that Alex wrote. And it got a lot of attention from people, you know. And, like, it's still one of our best. And, and, I, and I realized at least at that point that we should keep doing this every issue. We could just keep putting stuff up. You know, putting as much we can. We don't want to put all of them, obviously, because then there's nothing in the issue themselves. You know, I'd mostly put two an issue, and then once we made, but once we made, of course, the year review one to three. Once we made those issues free, then we didn't really. And like those are, you know, those are okay, right? So like we have a lot of we have we have a lot of free content out there already that can get people interested in it. I I like to think that people get one to three. And then they realize they should buy four. I think some people have done that. Some people just buy one to three, which is fine. You know. So I'd also, but that's not, that's not it either. The thing about the blog is that you know, the, the thing with it is that we we publish stuff from the PDF from the issue themselves, but we also do stuff only on the blog. We we do we do actual blogs. What's it called? Um, Ash did a blog. Uh, he wrote about his experience with GDC. That was really interesting. Amzol he wrote a response to a a piece in the issue. Called called predatory queerness and and that was a uh, that was a piece on the castle doctrine, um, and Amzor responds to it. He didn't he didn't he didn't particularly wasn't particularly fond of it, but I really appreciated the response that he wrote and putting time into it. So of course we put it up on the blog, and you know so we do blog content from that. Oh yeah, and also Lana and I did a did like a recording too. Lana and I went you know when I hang out with Lana we go to art galleries together, um, and we recorded our experience going to an art gallery. We talked about art. We just talked about painting. <laughs> Talk about paintings for like half an hour or like 40 minutes and then we just record it we put it up on the record review blog so really some of it is like kind of that kind of preview content but other but part of the other parts of it too are it's a kind of a space for i try to make it a space for you know the staff to be able to put up their thoughts on whatever they want to put up you know and responses to whatever they want to put up you know or interesting things that they you know that they want to put up it's, it really is a place for you know the staff to use about you know the things they want to talk about. That's why that's why when when Ash went to GDC, like I told him, hey you know you can put something on the blog if you want. You put something on the blog, you know. So it acts as that too, and and that's also kind of like internet content thing, right? Blogs are there for 
casual thoughts or whatever and and it's it's worked out too i think i think it's a good i think it's helped us that we have some kind of a bit more of the internet presence now than we used to instead of just staying locked in a baf so it's it's been pretty useful i guess that leaves only for the fluff question uh zalani what is your favorite video game of all time um jesus christ that's hard that's a very good question ah jeez you know what you know, the, the problem see, see the, the problem is that if I say one thing, I know I'm gonna forget something else. You know, it's a really important. I just wrote a piece on, on Sonic Adventure. It's probably, so, I, I think, I think probably Sonic Adventure Two is probably one of the most important games I've ever played. Yeah, it's a pretty important game for me. It kind of sparked, like, it was. Yeah, I'd say probably that game is probably one of my favorites. And even though, like, I wrote a huge, like, a ebook long, long, long form on Sonic Adventure. I think Sonic Adventure 2 is probably the game that I still play now. It's probably one of the first games I play, one of the first Sonic games, too. That game kind of sparked, like, a real perspective of how I approach video games in ways I didn't realize for, like, years until I went back to it. So that's, uh, that, 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 that might be probably my favorite video game of all time. Um, the thing is that, is that you can say it's your, your favorite video game of all time. You say it's, like, the most important game the thing that, that you think, like, the game you think is the best and the game that's most important to you. Sonic Adventure 2 is pretty important to me. I would, If someone said, what's the most important video game, I probably wouldn't say Sonic Adventure, but at least for me personally, it's a game that I think. I ask this question not to, like, incise of what is best or whatever other qualifier, but I find it's a question that is revealing about the person who answers it okay. with their answer. Yeah, I like, I like and, to go fast, is the idea. <laughs> and your answer is as good as any you could possibly hope for well thank you Zalani for speaking with us today oh, thank you. I appreciate it. Yeah. and it's been a blast